Yeah. Yeah, here we go. Hey. Hey, everybody. Uh, sometimes standing for this is, is a sign of just saying, hey, uh, it's like when a judge comes into the room and you all rise, right? It's saying that we, we are standing under the authority uh, of what we're about to read. So Catherine is going to read from us. This is 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 15. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they are able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And that they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and complete earnestness and in your love for us, to see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality as it is written. He who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Uh, let me, yeah, y'all. I won't make you stand for the whole sermon. I'm kidding. Actually, Jeremy and I are both going to teach this morning. I'm going to teach for a little while, then we're going to sing, and then he's going to share for a little bit. But um, I'm fighting a wicked ear infection right now. We just got back from the beach. I feel like I have half the ocean in my ear. So if I fall over, just come just prop me back up, kind of smack me on the back of the head, and I'll keep going. But um, we have been, that was, man, nobody even laughed at that. Everybody, a little flat. You're concerned about me. Yes, thank you. Uh, we've been in this series, uh, The Gospel Changes Everything, uh, this summer, and looking at how the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, really touches, changes, affects, transforms every aspect of not just our individual lives, but our corporate life, our communal life. Uh, we're a part of a family, right, is what Scripture teaches, that it just doesn't transform me individually, but I'm brought into this new family, into this new family system. Uh, I'm changed from the inside out. I have this core identity shift because of the gospel. And as a result of that identity shift, now all of my activities change because of who I am and who we are in Christ, right? So this new family, this new family system, this new identity, it bears fruit. It's not just things that we say that we believe or that we consider to be true. It's not just our words. There's actually actions that go along with it. So this gospel, it transforms everything, right? So this morning we're going to talk about, if you, if you can't pick up on it based on what we just read, uh, we're going to talk about how the gospel changes how we relate to our money 
and to our material goods. So if this is your first time uh, at Midtown, welcome. Uh, this, we will not talk about this every single week, but um, kind of laughed about it. I was just thinking about this. I, don't, I would give you a challenge to read this passage every, every, every day this week. Um, there is no way I will be able to teach or Jeremy will be able to teach as much as the Holy Spirit can teach your heart um, through just camping out in this passage. And it, it wrecked me uh, this week. Um, but it's kind of taboo, uh, you know, to talk about money in church. And there's lots of distrust uh, and in some ways well-earned distrust uh, about churches and money. Um, and you go to a church, if you've been here for any period of time, that doesn't pass an offering plate. We've never done that in any Midtown for 20 years. Um, and that was an intentional thing 20 years ago when we decided we are not going to pass an offering plate because we didn't want money to be an obstacle in many ways, because it had been for people in churches to hear in the gospel. But I'm going to tell you this, that maybe um, I'm feeling convicted personally about this, that maybe uh, we've been guilty of being a little too silent on the topic of money. And why is because there's probably nothing that affects all of our lives more than money, right? There's lots of things about each of your lives that are unique to you, unique to your family, unique to your situation. But money is something that all of us interact with on a daily basis, right? And so we do ourselves a disservice, I would call it a discipleship disservice, when we don't talk about money because Jesus and Scripture talks so much about money and so much about our relationship to it, maybe more than anything you could argue. I think 11, 12, 13 of the, of the 38, 39 parables that Jesus taught were about money, right? He talked about money more than any other topic than he talked about, right? Paul in 1 Timothy says that this about money, that the love of money, or really the word there, the over love of money, is the root of all kinds of evil. And so when money holds a certain uh, improper place in our hearts and our lives, it leads to evil. It leads to sin in our lives. So Paul, Jesus, they both understood, and this is why they talked about it so much, that our relationship to money, things can really get out of whack. And when our relationship to money gets out of whack, the world gets out of whack, right? So I want us to lean in this morning and, and consider this as we look at our relationship to money and how we view it, how we use it, how much we do or don't focus on it, that it may be one of the best indicators Maybe one of the best litmus tests you have to know what you really truly believe about God and your relationship with him is how you view and how you, you interact with money. So in many ways, Scripture would teach this, that you follow the money, uh, you see what you value. You follow the treasure, you find the heart. All right? So what did the passage that, that we just read in 2 Corinthians 8, what did that passage teach us, what does it teach us about money, about generosity, right, and about how the gospel affects the heart around this topic of money, right? Because if you, if you didn't catch on to it there just from reading it, I really could just reread it to us and say, do you see what it says there? Do you see what it says there? There's a, there's a transformation going on in the heart of the Macedonian church, and Paul's arguing he wants to see it go on in the heart of the Corinthian church as well, because when the gospel starts to get traction in the heart, it transforms Christians, people who are following Jesus, from being greedy, primarily greedy people, which greed, I know that's kind of a, we, none of us think we're greedy, right? 
But greed is essentially thinking about myself first with my money to being incredibly generous people, right? Outwardly focused with my money, right? So what does this, this passage teach us? I'm going to go through three things. The first thing this passage teaches us is that gospel generosity is marked by sacrifice, all right? It's the first thing. That when the gospel starts to work in the heart, it leads to generosity that is marked by sacrifice. So Paul, he's writing, right, to the Corinthian church, but he's referring to this other church in Macedonia. It's another church that he was a part of planting. And he's using this Macedonian church as an example for the Corinthian church. And the church of Macedonia, they faced trials that the Corinthian church never faced. It says there in verse 2, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Now, if you read that and follow all the parts of that sentence, you go, wait, what? Their very severe trial, their overflowing joy, and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Those things almost seem impossible to be put together, right? The Macedonian church was facing trials that the Corinthians didn't, and the Corinthian church was certainly more economically far better off. In fact, I would argue that Nashville in many ways could be, if we were trying to mirror churches and church life in the Bible to, to, to lives and cities in the world, we are far more like Corinth than Macedonia, right? We're not the ones going through the very severe trial and extreme poverty like the Macedonian church. And yet, even though the Corinthian church, they excelled, it says there in many ways, in faith, verse 7, in speech and knowledge, they were not excelling in this area called the grace of giving. They excelled in a lot of different ways, but this Macedonian church was putting them to shame in this area of generosity. And so Paul, he was raising money at this time for needs for the poor in Jerusalem from the churches that he planted. And he was reaching out to the Corinthian church, likely uh, to wealthy Gentile uh, converts in Corinth for poor uh, Jewish and Gentile converts in Jerusalem and saying, these people are in need. These, these people are a part of your family. They're a part of the body of Christ. And these are people that you're never going to meet, but they're in desperate need. And I'm reaching out to you to actually call you in, your, in, in all of the other areas that you're excelling to excel in this area of giving. And I'm using the Macedonian church as an example because why? The Macedonian church, uh, they were massively on board with this idea that grace moves in my heart to be generous in a sacrificial way. It says there that they gave not out of the abundance of their possessions, right? But really that they gave out of, I think you could say it this way, they gave out of an abundance of being possessed by something other than their possessions. That they were possessed by something other than what they had. Maybe you've heard it said this way. I know I've said it this way before. They didn't just have stuff, or sorry, how do you say it? They had stuff, their stuff didn't have them, right? They had things, but their things didn't have them. They weren't under the control of their, of their things. They were overflowing with joy, which welled up in rich generosity. That word their joy is the word their grace. They were overflowing with the grace of God, which welled up in rich generosity. They gave beyond their ability, which means what? That they gave to the point to where it actually cost them something, right? It was sacrificial. 
And the amount really wasn't the point. That's what verse 12 is talking about. It says, when the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Or in verse 11, according to your means. The, the amount wasn't the point. He was saying their heart was moved in such a powerful way that their willingness was there in order to give to a place where it was sacrificial for them, whatever that looked like. That's going to look different for each of us, right? Now, if I'm honest, and I'm not all the time, but in reading this passage, I was like, you know what? This is not the way it works with me. A lot of days. Most giving, not just in the church, but in life is not done like this, in this sort of sacrificial way. Here's the general pattern, the modus operandi of Dave Burden. Here's how it goes. I begin with my needs, my wants, and, and immediate, and I want to make sure that those things are taken care of. And then there's kind of a concentric circle that works itself out. And then there's like my future wants and my future needs and my future securities, right? And after all of those kind of concentric circles of safety are created, where my wants and my needs are considered first, so that my wants and needs will never be in question, then whatever is left over, a portion of that, whatever is left over, could be considered to be given to somebody or something else that's in need. I know that's hard for me to say, but that, that's honest, y'all. If, if I'm being honest about how my mentality most days is, that's, that's how it works. And if that's the case, then my giving is not sacrificial. It's not generous. It's not motivated by grace. That, that means my giving is optional or my giving is conditional. And what was going on in the Macedonian church was something very, very different. They were sacrificing, and they were sacrificing for what? Paul says there, the goal is, in verse 15, equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. What is he saying there? He's not, let me tell you what he's not saying. He's not saying that uh, I want complete economic equality across the board in every situation. That is not what he's arguing. What he's saying there, a way to kind of paraphrase that is to say this, I want you to take on this mentality that we are all in this together. This is not an every man for himself sort of life. That we're all in this together. We're a part of a family. We're a part of a body. That's why he refers to you when he says, so that the one who gathered, you know, did not have too much or too little. What he's referring to there is to Exodus. When they were brought out of Egypt, brought out of Pharaoh's, you know, heavy hand, right? And they delivered. Remember when they were delivered, where did they go? They headed into the desert. And they all collectively had this experience. And what was the experience? Every single day, waking up and the Lord bringing down manna onto the ground. And they would go out and gather what they needed for that day. And they were told to not gather more than they needed for that day. And people who couldn't, because there were people who couldn't go out and gather, other people went out and gathered for those people, right? In order to meet their needs. Why he's referring to this and what he's talking about in equality is what he's saying is, is when, when the gospel isn't moving in the heart and it's looking like sacrificial generosity, that's a testimony of trust and dependence on God's provision, not just for the person who's receiving, but on the person who's giving. You see it? The giver and the receiver are both saying, we're gonna trust God to provide. And so I'm free to give it all away. 
Why? Because the Lord can provide more. I was thinking about um, when I was a little kid, I went, some of you are new, so you haven't heard the story. Sorry for those of you who have. I went to a camp one time when I was probably seven or eight years old. My parents, it's right before, right this time of the year, you know, back to school, when my mom and dad had taken me to Kmart and bought me all these new clothes, new t-shirts, new shorts, everything was Hobie because that was what was hot in those days, right? Yeah, it's actually probably cool again. Um, and I went to this camp. It was way up in Wisconsin, and there were kids from all over the United States that went, and there was this kid named Patrick from Chicago who came, and he had literally nothing. He came with no bag, no nothing, and his parents, I don't know, somebody in the community had shipped him off to camp, and Patrick and I became fast friends. And I began to realize after day two that Patrick, he was wearing the same clothes. And so... Uh, I literally started just, hey, man, I got extra T-shirts, I got extra shorts, I got extra everything. And at the end of the week, I, I literally got called the camo kid that week at camp because I wore a camouflage tank top and these camouflage pants. Every picture I'm in, I wore the exact same outfit. <laughs> and when I got home from, from camp back to Upland, Indiana, my mom literally asked me, she, she opened up my suitcase and there were no clothes in it. And she goes, where, where are all your clothes at? And I said, I gave them all to Patrick. And she goes, you did what? <laughs> I said, yeah, I gave them all to Patrick. He didn't have any clothes. And my, obviously my mom was a little bit frustrated with me, but here was the deal was I never, ever, ever thought for one second that what we read in that call to worship wasn't true about my family and about my mom and my dad. This is that I can give all of my clothes away because you're going to buy me more clothes because I'm going to have my needs met by you. That, that's the picture here. I, wasn't, I was just an eight-year-old kid. Maybe kids are better at this than we are honestly. They give it away freely because they understand what mom and dad are going to provide for me. So I can be sacrificial. I can give it all. I can be generous. Why? Because I want to be taken care of. So gospel generosity is always sacrificial. Secondly, gospel generosity is a movement of grace in the heart. Gospel generosity is a movement of grace in the heart. If you read back through this, you, you realize he's always referring to this idea of of desire, right? They're earnestly pleading for the opportunity to give money away and to give of their material goods away. What does that, what does that mean? Well, it means that generosity is, is actually, it's a movement of grace in the heart first. That's why he says there in verse one, and now brothers and sisters, we want you to know about what the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. You see where it begins? Everything that they do, everything that they are, all of this heart posture and this heart motion begins with the grace that God has given to the Macedonian church. And that's why he calls it the grace of giving, right? True generosity is a movement of grace in the heart. So how, if, if that's true, if generosity, if sacrificial generosity is a movement of grace in the heart, how is that grace activated? Now you're going to learn a little secret here. This is, this is a serious thing here, but in verse 5, this is, we can't miss this. It says, they gave of themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. Why is that the secret? 
Well, gospel generosity is a movement of grace in the, in the heart, and this is how it happened for them. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then, by the will of God, also us. What does that actually mean? What does it mean to give yourself first to the Lord? You hear, you hear what it's saying? There, it's all about them giving to other people in this passage, but the, the secret, the key, the ticket, is they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then, by the will of God, the will of God to us. What this is saying is this, before I ever begin to address how I'm giving this way in these horizontal relationships, in my community, with others in need, I never will be a generous giver motivated by the grace of God until I actually deal with this vertical relationship. Before I go vertical with the Lord and I step into his grace for me, then I will not be a grace-motivated giver. I will not be generous like this. Because when we give ourselves first to the Lord, what we're doing first and foremost is this, we're surrendering back what is rightfully his in the first place. It is me saying, you have all authority in my life. Why? Because my life is not my own. That's what scripture says. I was bought with a price. I, I belong to him now. We are his. That's why Acts 17 says, in him we have life and we have breath and we have everything else, which is basically saying this, when I give myself first to the Lord, I'm saying this, my life is, a, is an ongoing and, an, and complete work of your grace. Do you believe that? Do I believe that? Is it true that all I have is his because I am his? It reminds me of, I, some of you know that I'm adopted. When I think about my life, think about even standing here this morning, I've made a lot of decisions in my life, but there was a decision that was made for me ending up in the home that I ended up in that I think you can argue if you want to logically work it out that everything in my life was predicated on something that happened for me that I didn't decide. Like if I had time, I'd go into the nuances of my story, but I could be in 18 other families right now, which means I wouldn't be here right now, Right? That's true. Is that any less true about you? You could have been born in a different century, on a different continent, in a different place. Scripture also says that you're adopted into this new family. So to give ourselves first to the Lord is surrendering to that, that reality, that, that myself, my will, my agenda, my goals, my priorities, my ambitions, my autonomy, it's not real. My life is his, and I give myself first to him, and I, I surrender myself to his will, to his value, to his ways. And when that happens, everything else is like a domino. Everything else easily follows suit. So if I have a generosity with money problem, then I, first and foremost, I have a misunderstanding of me problem and a misunderstanding of the Lord problem. I have a grace problem problem. That's why the Macedonian church, it starts there, it says it was the grace of God given and they gave themselves first to the Lord. It was only by tasting his grace and coming into his grace, coming to him, that they were capable in extreme poverty and trial to surrender, right? Everything we have is yours, even in extreme poverty, even in extreme trial. 
Gospel generosity is always sacrificial. Gospel generosity is a movement of grace in the heart. And lastly, gospel generosity is a mark of responding in gratitude for Jesus. Right there in verse 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty, so, sorry, so that you through his poverty might become rich. What is, what is Paul saying there ultimately? Um, that's what you come to when you come first to the Lord, when you bring yourself first to the Lord and then to other people, is, is you come to a Jesus who, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. When we come to him, what we come to is someone who gives himself to us. And we are able then to be free, to be generous givers. Why? Because we have been freely and generously given to. That's why he says, freely you have received, now freely you give. So it's one of the great gospel litmus tests for us is how free are we with our stuff? How free are we with our money? Because if we've received everything from him freely by grace, then we actually are free with all of this stuff. We're free with what we have. But if I'm not free with it, if I've got a clenched fist, if I believe I deserve it or I'm entitled to it or it's something that I've earned or it's something that's mine, then again, I've got a gospel problem. I've got a grace problem. I might not be coming to the real Jesus. Because even though Paul's goal was equality, right? He says, I want so that everyone has their needs met. Jesus' goal was not equality. It was, I'm going to empty myself entirely, right? I'm going to empty myself entirely so now you actually have the resources through my riches to empty yourself partially so that others' needs may be met. That's what Philippians 2 says, that Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, but he made himself a servant. He humbled himself even to the point of death on the cross. That's the gospel. So the gospel makes gospel generosity when we come and we realize I have so much to be grateful for in experiencing what has happened for me in Jesus Christ. And the fruit of that is always, this has always been the fruit since the early church, since the Acts church, the willingness to follow, to love, to lead and to serve sacrificially, not just in word, but also in deed, not just with our mouths, but also with our money. That was the mark of the early church. Cross-cultural unity, socioeconomic diversity, mashed together because people realized we're a part of a new family. All right, let me pray for us, and then we'll continue worship. Lord, uh, thank you for your word here. Um, thank you that we see uh, in this example of this Macedonian church, uh, a powerful uh, picture of how your grace is at work in the heart uh, of a community. Lord, uh, it challenges me uh, deeply uh, as, a, as a man, as a, as a father of a family, uh, as a leader of a community, Lord, uh, that this would be more a mark of our lives, that we would not be uh, giving because we're commanded to give or out of obligation, Lord, like Paul's saying here, um, but that we would be doing it out of a sincere love and earnestness, Lord, because uh, we've been so ravished by your grace and your goodness. Continue to teach us and lead us now as we worship. We pray in your name. Amen.
going to let you guys stay seated. This is a new song for our congregation, so some of you might have heard it, and that is wonderful, but many of you um, will not have, and none of you will have heard it from us. Um, and so uh, if you know it, or if you catch on to the melody, I would love for you to sing, but I, I would also offer this to you um, as a prayer, something to guide you in reflecting um, and being led by the grace that God has given you into saying, my life is not my own.
Amen. So, uh, Dave got to come up here and be the good cop. <laughs> now I get to be the bad cop. Uh, no, but it, it really is one of those things that, you know, when we talk about generosity, when we talk about giving, you know, to be real clear, what we're talking about is supporting the local work of the body of Christ in this particular place and wherever else you might find yourself. But that can feel real selfish coming from the guy who's also supported by what you give. And I can feel real smarmy real quick. That's a fun vocab word. Look that one up. Uh, so let me, let me help you and myself uh, by reminding myself of this by a, a little story. When I was, uh, my previous life, I was a church planter. Uh, and so, you know, as a church planter, you ask for money a lot. And it was one of those things that I was super afraid when I first got into that. I tend to be, uh, you know, fairly timid, especially when like challenging conversation happens. And so that was a, like the challenging conversation of all challenging conversations to have. Hey, will you give me some of your hard-earned money? That's hard to say. And it's hard to, to come up with a compelling reason why you should be convinced to do that. But what Dave just did is to give you the compelling reason. Because this is, when we talk about church and giving, and to me be the one, being one of the people who receives some of your generosity, if I've learned anything, I've learned that pastors come and go. The body of Christ does not. And so the minute that you see any one of us mishandling anything, and we want to be as vulnerable and open with that as we can, fire me. Take my salary away, whatever. But the goal here is that the body of Christ goes forward, not that the body of Jeremy or Dave or anything else is sustained, because the Lord will do that. Let's be about his work and see what he might do. So with that said... Um, one, of, one of our elders on that church planting team uh, was a guy named Anthony, and he was one of the sweetest guys ever, big teddy bear of a guy. And he really helped me to understand how to think about church budgets and giving and generosity. And he just said this. Uh, he was a businessman, so he was in the things of money all the time. He actually owned a bunch of Little Caesars, so we got free pizza a lot, which was great. Uh, but he said this. There must be a connection between your generosity and what you're calling people to and vision. There must be a, your church budget must reflect your vision for what God is doing in this city. One follows the other. The vision is what fills out the church budget. What we spend our money on is not just some sort of black box back here that you like, you know, send your money to nowhere and we just kind of, you know, make decisions as best we can to support ourselves and, and fatten our pockets. Know that every dollar that comes into this place, Lord willing, if we steward it well, is being sent right back out into this community that Jesus loves and that we love for his sake. So that's when we talk about what we're asking you to give to and to consider uh, where your ties and contributions go, that's what we're talking about. It's not about making, making this place comfy, but it is about making this place look more like heaven uh, on earth as Jesus brings his kingdom to bear. So when we think about one thing, just to get real uh, tactical and, and, uh, and specific for a minute, we have just rolled over a new budget season. 
So, you know, just like every business and every home, you kind of have endings and beginnings and seasons for your budget. Our budget runs from July to June. And so we have just rolled into a new budget year, but tying together vision with budget, that means we have also just rolled into a whole new year of ministry initiative, a whole new year of prayer and dreaming and excitement about what the Lord might use our little body to do. And so there, and you've probably heard every week we're getting up here saying something about, hey, we got this new thing rolling out. We got YP starting. We got men's and women's happening. We got all these plans and things that we want to do in the fall and in the spring. Now, the Lord can do with those plans whatever he wants. We've made them, and now we're going to pray towards it and let him handle that uh, as we move forward in some of those things. But ministry requires money. And Jesus ties together our money with our heart. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart is. And so if you want a practice, if you're coming out of this sermon with, okay, I hear God's generous call to give, I've received his generous grace, and I want to look more like my father and be generous, but you're going to struggle to do that as we all will. A tangible practice is literally what Jesus is saying. Where your treasure is, there your heart is. So put your treasure where you want your heart to go and then trust that your heart is going to follow that. So here's what that might look like if you treasure what Midtown is doing here and if you treasure Creve Hall and the surrounding area and want to see more people, more disciples made uh, and those disciples to continue to make disciples and impact South Nashville. This is what that might look like. Um, We have a couple of slides. The first one is just one number. That's a big number, especially with this new giant 15-foot projector screen you got. Maybe we should have used the small projector screen until next week. Uh, (laughs) So when, when we consider, when we have taken all that we believe God is calling us to uh, over the course of the next year and total all of that up and the finances that that will require, this is that number. $650,000 is that number for what we believe God is calling us into in the next year in service for his church in and around Creep Hall. Now, to take that one level deeper, um, I I want to kind of let you in behind the curtain uh, a little bit more. And by the way, this won't be the only conversation about vision and budget that we're going to have. Again, we want to be as vulnerable and transparent as we can be um, because, like Timothy says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and we want to be Uh, as accountable as we can so that we don't spin into any of those kind of things. For the sake of today, we're going to be more overarching and then be a little more specific as we move on in the next few months. So this next slide also brings you into a reality of what our congregation is about. Our congregation does not exist only in and of itself. We are a part of a multi-campus movement of gospel transformation in and around Metro Nashville, known as Midtown. It was started 20 years ago, and there's a whole history to how we got here in this room today. Many of you, or at least some of you, have been a part of that for a number of years, maybe even the whole thing. What these two numbers represent, like any church plant, when Midtown Creve Hall was planted at Granbury uh, a number of years ago, like any church plant, mine included previously, you exist with two kinds of funding. You get the kind that your people who are coming to your congregation are giving you. But typically, there's a gap. 
between what you bring in internally and what your ministry expenses are. That gap is filled in by external giving. Now, the beauty of what Midtown is, is that all of that external giving has been given from other congregations who have a surplus. So it's like we've been the Jerusalem church who's been hurting and needing stuff. And this other church has come in and say, no, we see your need and we want to give to it. And we want to bless you guys so that you can be a blessing to others. But the goal of any church plant is not to stay in that state. The goal of any believer is not to stay in that state. It is to grow up into maturity so that we can be givers and not only takers. These two numbers right here, there has never been a year in our financial history at Midtown Creep Hall where we have filled that gap. We have been on the take every one of our years of existence. And that is not a point of shame or guilt or grief. That is a point of inquiry and curiosity about what the Lord might be doing in calling us to continue to grow up into him. So what we are hoping to do, Lord willing, this year is to take that $118,000. That $118,000 is what it takes to, there's new works going on right now. The work that's going on in Napier, the work that's going on in West Nashville, other congregations are being planted as we speak. Wouldn't it be fun to be a giver to those congregations and to those works of ministry as opposed to being a continuous taker on that? So praise the Lord for this Midtown organization and how it has strategically allowed us to be who we are and to, to build our foundation. This year, Lord willing, but based on who we see coming and the momentum, God seems to be doing something here, guys, doesn't he? And so wouldn't it be fun if this time next year we can look back and go, you know what? We not only met our need, like our Midtown Creve Hall need of 532, we gave over and above. We met that 118. We hit 650. Maybe we hit seven. Maybe we hit 750. All for the sake of every dollar coming in, going back out into the movement of Midtown, and even more than that, into the movement of God's kingdom as he builds it here in Nashville. So what is the ask then for you as we close up? That $650,000 represented by those two numbers it's a scary number when you look at it real big, but again, another church planting school thing that they taught us to do is just divide that thing out. So essentially what, what $650,000 looks like is 100 people giving uh, $6,500 a year or $541 a month. Now again, some will give more, some will give less, but to have some sort of target to shoot at, I just wanna give you that as one idea or one blanket way to consider your own giving. And I'm not saying you should only give here, but if you're committed to Midtown Creve Hall, if you're a member here, uh, if you believe in what God is doing here and believe what he is doing in this city, then this would be the primary way that Jesus has chosen to make disciples is through the local church. So the primary way that you make disciples with your generosity is through the local church. Is that clear enough? So I think a couple of, of uh, application points that, Dave just said, to ask yourself about your own giving this morning. Me too. We're about to go to the beach for a week, and I already, my wife and I have already talked, and we're going to talk about finances. Isn't that fun to talk about budget when you're at the beach? Woo! So this is for all of us together, okay? One, 
is your giving sacrificial? Uh, or is it just out of the, the comfort zone that I have? That's what I give. Uh, secondly, is your giving going specifically to making disciples? Is it going to extend that grace that you have experienced into the life of somebody else? And so this may just be an opportunity as you enter into school's about to start back. I'm sure jobs are about to kick back up again. Summer vacations are starting to come to a close. And as they do, this might be a moment that the Lord would ask you to just consider, what am I giving right now? Am I giving anything? Uh, and how might the Lord, not out of any kind of grief or guilt or shame, but out of an abundance, I want to give out of a joy, would he give that to you by his spirit? And secondly, maybe this has just been kind of on auto draft for the last three years and you kind of forgot it existed. This could be an opportunity as you think about your vision uh, for yourself or your family or your community over the next year to reassess and say, am I giving not just sacrificially or not just sort of as a, an afterthought, but am I giving sacrificially? Am I giving to extend the grace that I have received to others that they could know Jesus to? That's the ask, I believe, that Jesus gives us this morning. So let me pray. So Father, make us generous. Make us generous like you were generous. Thanks for your grace. We don't deserve it. Uh, we did not earn it. In fact, the, the only wages that we have garnered uh, was death but you have paid in full with your blood. You didn't just tithe your blood, you gave your whole self. And so would we, as now we are yours, would we give our whole selves, like Romans 12 says, Romans 12 says as living sacrifices back to you. Thank you for your great sacrifice for us. Would we live in light of that in every decision we make by your spirit's power? We will not do that naturally. Empower us with the joy and the open-handedness that your kids can have. We pray in Christ's name.